coming to you from Los Feliz, Los Angeles. I am Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm sitting down with comic artist and writer Mimi Pond, author of several books. Her first, by the way, many of you in this neck of the woods may remember the Valley Girl's Guide to Life. Most recently, Over Easy. It's an autobiographical story about working at a diner in Oakland in the late 1970s. It's, it's an era that, reading it, I couldn't help but think about Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, Boogie Nights, because though that may be in the porn industry of the San Fernando Valley of the late 70s, it feels like a very different setting, it's still consumed with the question of, the 70s question of what comes after the 70s. How, how central was the question of what comes after the 70s to you at this time, when you were living in Oakland in the 70s? Well, it was more of a matter of what comes after the 60s, ah. because the, the, um, it's interesting you mentioned Boogie Nights, because it, it's, it's also, I think, Cons- it's it's in the same realm of that because it's it's really an examination of what I like to call the moral swamp of the late seventies. <laughs> and uh, right now my dog is trying to get you, Mabel. No, <laughs> Mabel. Uh uh-uh. uh. No. Come here. Come here. Lay down. Come here. Lay down. He's not here to play with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the seventies bothered me since I was a teenager in the seventies, and I felt like we had missed the boat. The sixties had come along. The, the slightly older kids had had all the fun, and now wh- what did we have? We had Watergate, we had Nixon, we had you know the um, the Manson murders, uh, or the Patty Hearst kidnapping, <clears throat> the oil crisis, and um, and the Captain and Tennille. <laughs> Mm, sure, sure. The whole, the whole like, suite. Yeah. So it was, and the you know music then was had, was just like the the. Fetid, filthy bong water. (laughs) You know, it was like arena rock and, uh, cheesy arena rock and, and, uh, the Carpenters and, uh, Loggins and Messina and all, just like this syrupy crap. And, and it was, it was just awful. And I was like, this is what I get? Really? This is it? And so I was at the time listening to everything but contemporary music i was listening mostly to mm. old jazz and classical music and folk music um and and just feeling like i'd been cheated out of like an exciting youth but mm. you know i think that's i think that's really common that that mm. kids feel like they just missed the boat and there's always going to be someone slightly older than you telling mm. you oh man you should have been here 5 years ago that's when it was really cool man uh-huh. now it's over mm-hmm. right it's the, the, the sense that yeah the party just ended mm-hmm. you're not getting in it the yeah. party the party's over it's it's interesting i mean the 70s it's it's a, it's been a standard decade to make fun of for a long time and you know, I think of, as I say, Boogie Nights, a movie in the 90s about the 70s, which is poking fun at it to an extent, that, that era. But when I watch actual movies from the 70s, and me and other friends who were born after the 70s ended, we'll watch, we'll see artifacts from that time and think, boy, everything seems so shabby and hollowed out in the 70s. I mean, was, is that an accurate perception? Yeah, it was just crappy. <laughs> everything was orange and brown and avocado green yeah. and, <laughs> and beige, and, and it was just depressing. <laughs> um and it wasn't until punk music came along and really injected the scene with some really new energy. And it was the great thing I thought about it was that it was like all like do it yourself, street level energy. It didn't come from 
it wasn't prepackaged. It wasn't like stuff you could buy, go to the mall and buy. You had to kind of make it up yourself as you went along. And that's what made it so great. You know, like putting together thrift store outfits, you know, like just assembling disparate elements from different eras and making it new and fresh. And the same with the music, too. People had to make their own cooler realities to some extent. Yeah. There's a sensibility that's in line with that. I mean, you have your central character, Margaret, in art school at the beginning of this of this book, and or towards the beginning. Art school was what kind of a place? What kind of a place was that to be in the seventies? Well, again, it was so, sort of the feeling that that whatever had been exciting that was going on was now just sort of over, and mm. you were just kind of left holding the bag and wondering, like, <laughs> what did I miss? I mean, I enjoyed my art school experience. I felt like I got some really good skills, and I liked my teachers. But, um, you know, back then, no one was really teaching you how to market yourself after art school. Mm. It was just sort of assumed that you were going to go to graduate school and you were going right. to like hang into this in you were going to hang inside this ivory tower <laughs> as long as you could. And I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to go out and live life, you know. Right. right. And for I mean, I had a very romantic idea of what it was to live life. <laughs> right. That's what, that's what I'm going to. <laughs> Margaret in the book, she has many ideas about. Well, she she gets her student loan bill and doesn't want to stick it out in art school because of that, goes to work at her favorite diner, or recent, recently a diner recently that has become her favorite, and has a sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't want to call it fetishistic, but, but, a, but a, a very rich mental image of what it is to work hard and not think about art at all, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I was thinking about art. I think I just wanted to be in a in a working environment where right. it wasn't all about art and bullshit talk about <laughs> art, you know? Right. It's 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 this syndrome where if something is about art, that's one thing, but if if the world you're in is all about art, that's where it turns a bit poisonous. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. And um I really as much as I appreciate what the teachers I had gave me in terms of of uh technical craft and and uh discipline and focus uh there was no appreciation for cartooning then it was really looked down upon and i i grew up in a family with a father who was an amateur cartoonist who taught me how to draw very early and everyone just always said in my house that i was going to be a cartoonist it was just sort of a, a foregone conclusion and I didn't see anything wrong with trying to make a living doing that. But, you know, in art school, it was like, oh, well, that, oh, oh, you know. And, and you know, there's still, uh, you know, I mean, I think there's been huge leaps and bounds with cartooning and graphic novels just in the last 15 years. Right. But it's still, there's still a lot of fight coming from, from the traditional art world about cartooning and whether mm. it is art. Mm. You know, it's lowbrow, along right. with all that other kind of lowbrow art. And I don't, I don't even, I, I don't lump it in with that whole lowbrow art scene at all. I think it's its own purely American art form, and mm. it's, it deserves as much respect as any other art. Having myself grown up in Seattle in the 90s, where alternative comics were just sort of the main thing to read, it seems like. You know, there was this whole phrase, as I say, alternative comics. It was an, an existing world. In 1978, I take it that was not a that was not a a known world if it no, existed at all. No, I mean you you knew about underground cartoonists, and I knew I had had become acquainted with with Robert Crom in mm. Spain and and Bob Armstrong who did 
Mickey Rat, and um, those were great people to know. Um, but at the same time, um, their attitude, which I think it all sprung from Crumb. Mm. They all followed Crumb. They all copy. I mean, they didn't copy him literally their work, but they, the attitude, they took all their cues right. from him. And he had this very uh, negative attitude about, you know, the, the prospect of ever being respected or making right. any money doing comics. Right. And, and so they were, their whole attitude was like, you know, no one's ever going to respect us and screw right. it. And, right. and they were bitter. They were like guys in their probably mid to late thirties at that point, <laughs> And they were already bitter. And right. I, I felt like, you know, fine, I'll go do mainstream comics. I'll sell comics to, to mainstream magazines. So what if I'm selling out? It's better than waiting tables the rest of my life. No you doubt, know? no doubt. And when, when did you realize that you, you didn't want to be waiting tables in the long term? Well, you know, um, after working a year full-time doing waiting tables, right. um, it's enough to make you hate people before they walk in the door. It's really mm -hmm. a hard job physically and emotionally and mentally um it's just very hard work mm. you know and i was up to it but i i knew i didn't want to keep doing it forever mm. you know it's i think of the 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 action in the book and over easy i think of the 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 actual process of waiting the tables you you describe and how the how the cafe operates it seems like everybody in any two parties there's always both Friendship and hatred, you know, the, the customers you have to at least act friendly toward, then you can go behind into the kitchen and start swearing at them. Uh, you know, the cooks and the waitresses, they, they, they may be friendly at the core, but they're verbally, oh, <laughs> verbally always, abusive yeah, to each there's, other. There's always, there's always this war between the, the, the waitresses and the, right. the cooks. I mean, it's, there's constant friction there, and each one thinks that the job they're doing is the more important one. Oh, oh. And uh, the, the, the reason that that restaurant specifically was the only restaurant I ever could have worked at in the entire world was because the, the manager, our boss, who's called Laszlo Merengue in the book, was a guy who, who totally had your back. And his, he was a former Latin scholar and a poet and a former high school English teacher. And he, he agreed with you that, you know, this was, this is just a game we're playing for now. Right. We're taking notes and we're going to make art from this later. Mm -hmm. And this is just a goof. Mm -hmm. And anyone who thinks otherwise is crazy. And it, it was the perfect kind of support for me to have just mm -hmm. to know that, you know, that's your boss. Right. You know, I mean, we were always taking notes and comparing notes about customers and who they reminded us of and, <sighs> and what they must do and where they came from, you know, speculating on, mm -hmm. on their, their whole backgrounds and and um, also he he ran the restaurant like it was his own strange punk rock opera. I mean, mm. he cast it like he was casting some bizarre anarchic opera. You know, right? It's a point of curiosity that's come up about the Laszlo character for me. Of course, this is only the first volume of the story over easy, and it, this isn't fully revealed in it yet. But I have to ask why why did Laszlo run this restaurant? Well, that's the thing about the seventies is like, why did anything happen? Because it could, because there weren't, there was, you know, there was no one telling you couldn't do right. that stuff. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that was the great thing about back then. It was like, um, anything was possible hmm. and, and it was, it, you know, there was no just say no. It was like, right. just say yes to everything. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it, of course, it, it couldn't go on like that indefinitely. You right. know, <laughs> it's it's true. It's I guess hearing so many '70s stories like Boogie Nights and Beyond, I was almost primed reading over easy. You know, seeing the uh, seeing the drug dealer come in and whatnot, and uh, you know, seeing people snort coke on their shifts. Like, uh oh, someone's going to be dead by the end of this book, or we're going to get the grim aftermath will come in this book. But Unlike many a '70s story, the grim aftermath does not come in this book. It's a it's, it's a high note you end on. Oh, there is there, <laughs> there is there is there is a grim aftermath to come in the sense of in, in the continued story, or it's the grim aftermath everybody grandly knows in America of the 1970s. In what sense is it a grim aftermath? Well, I don't want to give too much away. Right. Don't don't do that. I, I would say both of those things. Ah, okay. So there's I, I look forward to reading it. The, the grim, as we say, though that may be, but. I want to go back to something you said about observing people at this restaurant because naturally with your visual sense, you, you, you will have at this job seen so many examples, visual examples of humanity. But as well, I mean, you, you have humanity coming to you. You get to, you know, how wide a swath of humanity could you observe at this job? Fairly wide. I mean, it wasn't, it was not a cheap place to eat. It wasn't mm-hmm. like a regular coffee shop where, mm-hmm. you know, a plate of eggs was $2. It was, it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was the, one of the first of its kind. It was it was in it was in the same school as as uh, Chez Panisse, hmm. and, and you know the, the the burgeoning foodie movement. It just never got the respect or the press that Chez Panisse did. But it was oh. all about the same thing. It was like this revelation that you could you could serve breakfasts that were made with fully fresh ingredients like butter and cream hmm. and fresh fruit and fresh vegetables instead hmm. of the kind of you know, frozen hash browns. And And the crab has made a big deal of as well. People love the crab. Yeah. And, and, um, that, you know, real cream and coffee, Mm. um, not just half and half, but actual cream, Mm. you know, linen napkins. Um, it was, it was all deluxe and, and, you know, it was kind of mind blowing for anyone used to, to eating regular coffee shop food. Mm. Yeah. Everyone, I mean, it was a kind of, you know, and omelets, which were a big thing in the 70s, mm. sort of trend-wise, it was a big omelet era. <laughs> I didn't um, know yeah. Uh, I think starting in the 60s, omelets were, were getting hot, and then they just continued. And then the whole, I think, brunch became a big deal in the 70s. Oh, I see. That was, and it, it remains, and so it remains today, yeah. it seems. I still hate brunch. <laughs> um, from, was that an artifact of... Working at uh, the cafe, or is it well, just something you've never liked? Both working there and and also like um, going out. Anytime you go out for brunch, there's going to be a crowd, oh, sure. and and you know you're sitting and waiting and waiting it to get served, and you're getting crankier and crankier because mm. it's already like eleven o'clock or noon, and you haven't eaten. Mm. It's not good, and so you know the brunch crowd they're cranky by the time they get served. Ah, uh, it's it's a recipe for disaster. I, I, I can so. I can see how that. Yeah, I've had some unsatisfactory brunch experiences. But at this cafe, and in the book, it is the the Imperial. It you draw it, and and Margaret describes it as looking like it was formerly it used to be like an abandoned Chinese restaurant. The decor is fascinating. Is and is it is that how the the actual place looked looks still looks yeah, today? Yeah, it still looks that way. It's mm-hmm. it's um, exactly like it looks, and it was a, an old Chinese restaurant. and It's really beautiful. Ah. I want to get a sense of you drawing these memories again because you you initially began this book as a, as as a memoir did you not a, a non visual memoir right 
Yeah, well, as a as a regular conventional fictionalized memoir, um, and I, you know, the first day I went to work in this restaurant, I knew there was a story that I was going to have to tell at some point. It was just was crystal clear to On me. Day one, this yes. is oh, here's yes. here's a rich place. Yeah, and uh, I spent years trying to figure out what that story really was, and. When my son, when our son was born in 1992, it, uh, you know, this light bulb went off um, that this, you know, this restaurant manager who we all had venerated, uh, I was like, wait a minute, he had a family at home, but he was, he chose to like spend his free time hanging out with a bunch of 20-somethings and drinking and doing drugs. Right. You know, he, he really, uh, this, this complicates things because he's not really the person that I had thought that he was you know it it you know it becomes much a much more gray area morally just as the right. 70s were a complete gray area morally or what i like to call a moral swamp <laughs> um and then i had to like really examine my memories and my relationship with him and really think right. about that and it, and it makes it much more interesting i think when there's there's moral gray areas um mm-hmm. and and when when um Major protagonists are not entirely um, positive people when they have you know complicated backstories. Um, it's, it makes it much more interesting. And atop the moral swamp, as you say, in in this restaurant, it seems like many restaurants develop into their own small ecosystem where, oh, yeah. if there are societal rules, which maybe there weren't in the seventies anymore, those don't really apply anyway. Yeah, I mean, they're their own little microcosms. Mm-hmm. Tell me how, I mean, that, that seems like that, that element itself would make anybody want to write about a place. But how long, how long did it take for, as you say, the, the, the sense of what the story was to, to cohere in your mind, what the story of this cafe was, the process you've just described? How long before you could look back and see a shape to it? I've been taking notes for years and years, but um, it probably, after... My son was born, and I finally figured out what the story generally was. It took about another six years to um, start to really work on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I kind of slowly tried to outline it, and eventually began writing it. I guess around 1998, mm-hmm. and um, in the early 2000s, my agent tried to to sell it, and he couldn't. Um, and it was really frustrating. And there was a, some editor who came back and said, well, has she considered doing this as a graphic novel? And I, I was just furious. It just hit this nervous, like, how dare she? If I wanted to do it as a graphic novel, I'd do it as a graphic novel. I mean, just, she has no respect. And it was like, it touched a nerve. And I, it was, I finally had to break down and, and admit that that's really what it wanted to be. Mm. And, and then I was like, what am I nuts? I can't do that. That's just way too much drawing. I could never draw that much. That's crazy. And then I, this little voice inside me said, but you like to draw. <laughs> See, this was the question I had because I'd read elsewhere about your struggles with the, the fact that the agent couldn't sell the, the um, non-visual version of this, shall we say. And I, yeah, I did wonder, why didn't, why didn't she want to make it a graphic novel? You'd think given, given your skill, your visual skill and your experience there, you'd, you'd, that would be your first instinct. But in fact, well, it was not. if you didn't have two children to right. take care so of. So it was purely the time thing? Yeah, yeah. I just didn't have very much time on my own to work. Right. I mean, I had you know, two kids to take care of, a house to take care of. Right. Um, and I just couldn't fathom it at that point, sort mm. of. 
How how does the focus change in a story like this when you go from writing to illustrating? Not that much. The only the only difference is you have to you just have to do a lot of editing. I mean, it, every every sentence on the page said I want to. Every sentence said I want to be a page. Ah, uh, yes. And and you had to argue with every sentence. Go no, you might get to be a panel if you're lucky. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there was a lot of stuff that was description that obviously is just you know the background of 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 the action and so then you're just concentrating on on drawing the action and drawing you know having the dialogue spoken by the characters mm. and so i mean there was a there was a a few minor plot points that i had to toss out completely um and i i just had to You know, I don't, nothing's left out. It's essentially the same, which is why it's 270 pages, and it's just the first half. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, not that much, really. You just have to, sh- you know, show don't tell. But, I mean, I still, I there's still a fair amount of telling, just because I like words and I like storytelling. But I also try to, you know, do a lot of showing and mm. and an expression of mood through visuals rather than through words. As we say, this takes place in Oakland, over easy does, where you, you went after leaving San Diego before going to New York. And tell me what it was like to, to bring to life again, shall we say, the Oakland of that era. I mean, was it, was it that different? Was, there, was, there, was it a bringing back to life, or is this, in, in essence, the Oakland that, in your mind, there has always been and, and there still is? It was still always just there, and I I was very fortunate. One of the people who worked there was a, a photographer and took a lot of photographs of it and allowed me. He he always had he had been keeping a, a scrapbook of the place for mm. a long time and allowed me to scan a lot of those photographs. Wow. So you have from that era photos? Yes, oh, I wow. do. Yeah. Wow. And it's, I want to get a sense as well of what it was. It a matter to you of faithfully uh, replicating this this setting or was there was there a sense that you also had to that you wanted to be more true to how it felt to be there is there a difference or can you get both of can you accomplish both those goals by just doing how it was i hope i accomplish both those things Mm. i you know it's not it's fiction it's you know there's there's characters it's not literally the truth and it's not completely fiction but um there were many there were so many people who worked there and so many Mm. interesting people if you tried to do it literally it would be like a russian novel and so there's there's a number of characters who are a number of actual people who who worked there who inspired me to compress them into like from five line cooks into one you know or from you know three waitresses into one um so I I hope through fiction to get to the to the essence and the truth of the spirit of the time. There's one minor character who is a one of the many boyfriends of one of the other waitresses who is I think Canadian but he pretends to be British and he just stacks lie on top of lie about mm. his about his life and I assume he stands in for many a real character like that in 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 that era or in any era actually that was a real that, oh, was, that was one real one, person. one guy well then this <laughs> yeah. is this makes the question i want to know even more you know uh, margaret says in the book 
His blatant mendacity fascinates me. So what what was going on with this fellow? He was just a straight-up con man. Oh, yes. Um, And everybody thought he was awful, (laughs) all except this one waitress who was completely in love with him. Mm -hmm. And, And to this day, still professes great fondness for him and i'm just and you should otherwise completely sensible and very smart woman but i'm like <laughs> yes wow <laughs> but do you know where the fellow is these days like can you track down any of these people oh yeah a lot of them are still around oh still in oakland or yeah he's not but okay. um a lot of them are yeah oh it's it is fascinating though that where the with the character where the character margaret is in her life and how the era is that that somebody who's just because he so thoroughly lies, that itself is fascinating. Like, huh? That's, I guess that's that fits in with the no no rulesiness of the era, does it not? That's just something you can do is just lie a lot about yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and to me, I mean, I'm I come from a, a home where you could just never lie. I mean, uh. I could never lie to my mother. I would never consider it. As I became a teenager, I learned how to get around that by just avoiding revealing certain details, <laughs> but, but straight up lies. I just, I'm not good at that. Uh, I'm always afraid I'm going to be found out. Mm. Um, so it's always fascinating to me for me to meet people who are just so invested in lying. And it's like I said in the book, it's like, you know, isn't a liar just a storyteller who hates themselves. <laughs> right. I, I like that line. And that, that that's representative of something else I wanted to ask about, which is that even a character, as you described, the real guy was awful. The character in the book I don't think is judged, at least not harshly. Nobody in the book, nobody in the book is really judged. I don't think. I mean, it's 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 uh, whether it's is it to do with the perspective of of Margaret, the main character, or you 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 wanted to write a book that had a a non judgmental perspective on a moral swamp of an era. Do you know? Uh, I'm not sure what difference I'm getting at, but how did you think about that? Well, I you know, I don't necessarily pass judgment because it's just the way it was at the time and it, there's no point in like in in uh rewriting history right. you know and saying things were different than what they were it just was the way it was you know mm. it's all in the context of the times mm. um and it was it was a confusing era to, to live in where you know they're just you kind of had to to Forge your own moral path, I think. Right, right. See, it was up to you. You were kind of in a void. And yeah. Make your own. Go forth and make your own rules, which is... People say that a little bit about today, but, I mean, it's, would you say we're in a considerably more moralistic time oh, than the late 70s? Far more judgmental. Oh, you know, ever since, I think, the 80s and on, it's, you know, there's constant judgment. And mm. and one of the things that irritates me most is is, you know, we're supposed to be more enlightened about feminism and yet girls are are constantly being slut shamed for for having sexual adventures which men have been doing for millennium you know no one says anything about that boys will be boys you know men go out and cat around and and if women do the same thing it's like oh what a slut oh god she's pathetic you know Uh and it and back then there wasn't that there just wasn't it was it, it the whole tenor of the times was like it was women's liberation you know you were everyone it was sexual liberation you were supposed to go out and get all the nookie you could <laughs> you know you just go out and do it that was like your moral right and privilege right and this was pre-aids so of course you know there was no one thought anything of that it was just like go out and have fun why not you know there mm. it was it was harmless mm. i mean and i think today it still is harmless just 
in terms of, you know, if you use protection and you don't take a lot of pictures that wind up on the Internet. You know, your private life is your private life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you have to learn in your, you know, in your growth as, as an adult about how you express your sexuality and how you deal with other people, in, you know, in your life, whether it's through sexual relationships or non-sexual relationships, it's your own business. Mm-hmm. Now, was it tricky to portray that element of this era accurately you know, to, a, to an early 21st century audience, especially to readers, and there will be many of them who never experienced the era themselves, getting that, getting that across what that actually was and what it meant? How did you think about that? Um, you know, I wasn't really thinking about how to get it across to anyone younger. I just wanted to tell the story as I remembered it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the thing I've just recently been try- struggling with is how to explain to kids why we hated disco so much. Because <laughs> there's this there's this huge. Uh, nostalgic veil over the idea of disco now, and it's like, oh, it's so much fun, and right. you know, Studio Fifty Four, and all this stuff. But what people don't, what kids don't realize, is the context of who the people who liked disco were versus who the people who liked punk rock. Uh, pure were. identity struggle conflict. Yeah. I, so, so people who were into disco were the same people who are now like. Like look like um, Guy Fieri, mm, okay. Jersey Shore people, sure. douchebags, <laughs> disco douchebags. That was that. That was the douchebag of the day. Yes, douchebag of the day. <laughs> like if you were a woman and you went by yourself into a disco, right. then you know, you just constantly had to fight off all these sleazebags wearing like nylon. Uh, Kiana open neck shirts with yes. gold chains and 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 polyester pants and platform shoes. The like, caricature was real. Yes, it was absolutely real. <laughs> I, I feel like you know, I, like like Steve Martin, the wild and crazy guys, sure, like that. Sure. Oh my god! So, how did you feel when the 1990s 70s revival hit? When it became fashionable, fashionable in a way to look back on disco and say, "Oh, that's that was amusing." You know, you, were you thinking, "No, that all sucked." Don't yeah, don't yeah. don't don't make that 70s show. Don't. Don't, uh, don't. I like that '70s I show. See. I think it was good. Um, and That's I, true. It didn't. It didn't lionize the no, disco guys. No, no, it didn't. Um, but you know, the people who were into disco were, were tended to be very bourgeois, very conventional, middle class people. Whereas mm. people who were into, you know, I mean, hippies and punks were were united over their hatred of disco. That was the great <laughs> thing. Um, and, and you didn't like hippies much either. No, but they were just kind of there. They were always around. They're still there. You know, <laughs> at Oakland, Oakland and Berkeley, you know, it's a, it's still a, a hotbed of hippies. If you go to the cafe, can you see some of the same hippies oh, just yeah. sitting away with oh, their yeah. coffee? Oh, yeah. Oh, my. Um, along with everyone else, you know. Right. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's become part of the mainstream in a way. It's mm. sort of a given. Mm. It's funny, too, to meet people now who are like hippie spawn, the oh, children of sure. hippies. <laughs> so what are they like? Wait, to your mind, when you, when you meet these kids, well, what do you think? I, I think there's a lot of them who who um, rebel and become very conventional. It's because the family ties thing? Right. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> you mentioned what fascinates me, this identity thing about especially disco and punk, and how I think today a kid might easily have punk and disco on their iPod and just listen to oh, them yeah, on shuffle. Well, yeah. it's, the identity stuff has gone away. I would think that's... I mean, the context is gone. It's, right. you know, it's like, it's just like, 
I'm sure in in the big band era, there was the same thing. There were like people who listened to Glenn Miller and people mm-hmm. who listened to, you know, I don't know, um, help me out, other big band. Oh, sure, um, sure, 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 um, sure. You know, okay. Harry James or whatever. And, right, and right. you know, they were like, they saw enormous, like I, I got my dad a, a compilation CD of big band stuff that because he, he said he wanted some big band music for Christmas, right. and it turned out I got him all the wrong stuff. Oh, so this you isn't know, what I liked. This is this is right. the disco, and I like the punk of exactly, big band. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm you know, there's I'm sure there's there's very careful nuances for the people who mm. lived through those eras. But mm. you know, once you get beyond that, it's like, you know, it's like now there's like that those two paintings at the Huntington. Um, Huntington Gardens, Pinky and Blue Boy. Mm. Everyone thinks they were like painted by the same artist, and they're actually like thirty years apart, <laughs> and they're painted by two different artists completely, and they have mm. absolutely nothing to do with each other, right. and they just happen to get lumped together in this collection. Right, right, right. You know, speaking speaking of of visual art, tell me when you accepted that Over Easy wanted to be a graphic novel. What was the process of thinking through or finding out how it would look, what the look of Over Easy would be, because it it does look very distinctive when you when you actually read it, but what did you know when you started about how it needed to look? Well, I think what really helped me the most was when um, Alison Bechtel's book uh, Fun Home came out. It was the like it was kind of a, a prototype. It was like, yeah, that that's what I, I can do it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's just the, the size of it and the tones, the shading. I mean, not that I have tried to copy Allison's style because she's, I haven't done that and she's a brilliant, brilliant artist and I love that book. But it just, in terms of, of models for a book, there, there were, you know, there were other graphic novels that had come out, but nothing, I did, I just didn't relate to it the way I related to that. I was like, oh, this, I can do it like this. Uh. And that really helped. That was like, really finally made me think I could do it. And when you when you were putting it together, what did what did like this mean in in the actual process? Well, I just I, I, it has been in my head for thirty five years, right, you know. Right. So I just knew what it looked like. I that's see. all I can tell you. I see. Well, that's I mean that's a that's a good thing. Although they, they you get that out of the way, and then all the other many considerable challenges ahead, you know, they they come along. I I wonder. Tell me a bit about how we we see we see. Margaret in the book, working on her drawing. How do you think your visual style has changed in those decades? Is it, is it something you can actually look at and sense for yourself, or do other people have to tell you how you've changed in you know, drawing I, style? I, I think I've you know subtly changed over the years. I think I've you know having spent as much time as I have drawing this book, I think I've I've gotten to be better at drawing than right. I was before. Um, Certainly better at drawing the restaurant from every conceivable angle. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, and I continue to do comics occasionally for the LA Times. Right. Um, and that's kind of different because it's, it's just sort of a looser, more cartoony style. And this right. is sort of, I'm, you know, I, I, there's, character design that's based on my memories of what people look like who and some of whom look like some of the actual people who work there and some of them are ma- made from whole cloth mm. um 
so it's just sort of a matter of adopting a specific style for this particular book that mm. I have. I mean, my other work tends to be sort of looser and more cartoony. Mm. And the task as well of bringing back the mindset that you had in that in those days, just after art school, where I've heard you describe elsewhere, you're coming from San Diego, it was kind of a, a blank place to come from. So there was almost a you didn't come freighted with that much baggage of a place with, say, more quote-unquote history, or um, as well not being allied with hippies or certainly not disco people. In a sense, you were not necessarily a neutral observer, but you were in a pretty good place to come close to that, right, of what was going on then, because you weren't embedded in yes. much. Yeah, I think that's true, because mm. there just wasn't... It was kind of a blank, you know, you were just found yourself in this landscape and no one and also being a woman um there there was absolutely no expectations of you because no no one expected you to do anything except get married and have children i mean in the 1970s oh yeah i mean it was far more sexist and there was a lot oh god you know, the the crap you had to put up with from guys all the time. Oh, my. I mean, all the time. It was just a given. It was just like what it was What was there. You know, you sat at the bus stop and guys catcalled you from cars or pulled over and tried to get you to get in their cars. Sure. You know, and guys were always trying to pick you up. And I know that still happens today, but I don't think it's <clears throat> there's as much of a feeling of entitlement on the part of men that they can treat women that way or talk to them that much mm. anymore as there was then? I, think, I mean, I'd be afraid of getting arrested if I was pulling was, up and saying, get into my car. It great because, because I felt like Harriet the Spy. Like oh, I, okay. I always knew I was taking notes and, and I was, you know, I, had ske- I kept sketchbooks all the time and, and I had a goal. I wanted to move to New York and become a cartoonist. Right. And no one else imagined that for me or told me I could do that except my immediate family. Mm. Um, and so my whole idea was just like, screw it. I'm going to do what I want. You know, right. if you don't think I can do anything, I'm going to surprise you. Right, right, right. It's like, and a bit like gonna, Robert Crumb saying, I'm not going to get respect. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although his overlay was like, you know, negative, why bother? Sure, it's hopeless. Sure. I mean, yeah, mine was just like, I don't care if you're going to be completely dismissive of me and look right through me. I'm still here, and I'm taking notes on everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Tell me about some of the... First, I want to know, with 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 all the people you were working with at the cafe, how many of them really did have these things going on where they, this is what I do during the day, but I have my, I, some, some clearly are better poets than you might have thought they were in, in, in the book anyway. Uh, how many people had their own thing going on under the surface? Not that many. Mm. I mean, that was the thing that made it kind of perilous. There were people oh. who, there were other people who had been in art school, but who kind of like immediately rolled over and gave up on oh. the whole idea of making art. And a lot of people there were just like, they'd work all day in the restaurant and then they'd go in the bar, to the bar in the afternoon and they'd right. spend like hours and hours in there. And Always the same bar. And yeah. Anyway. And it's really skeevy bar. <laughs> Piedmont Lounge, which is now a Starbucks. Oh my. Um, and I, I was just like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Yes. And it, it sort of served to, now, I mean, a number of the people who work there have gone on to, you know, 
left the place and, and pursued other careers and done other things with their lives. And, you know, everyone has their own journey. But mm-hmm. um, at the time, it, it felt there was this hardcore, it felt like there was a hardcore contingent of people who were just devoted to going to the bar every night. And mm-hmm. if you stood up and said, I'm not going to do that, I have goals and I'm going to do this, they were very threatened by that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you think you're better than we are, and right. fuck you, you know? Yes. And I was like, no, it's just that I'm not going to do that. <laughs> right, exactly. What made the art students who rolled over immediately roll over immediately? I think it's just what ma- makes anyone roll over immediately who isn't really an artist. Uh, I mean, you can go to art school and fool yourself into thinking you're going to be an artist, but if you're not, if you don't have that compulsion and that drive to see yourself through, it's mm-hmm. not going to happen. I think you're, mm-hmm. if you're really an artist, you're going to do whatever it takes to keep making art. Right, even if you get that student loan notice that says you're going to have to pay all the money in the world, yeah. the question is, well, do you keep making art or don't you, right? Yeah. Mm. If you want it bad enough, you find a way to make it work. Mm. The process of of drawing the cafe, of, of drawing the setting again, I mean, how much how much did you go back there? How much did you go back and experience the places that oh, you had known before? Many, many times. I mean, I still have very dear friends there, and it's still owned by the same person, and... Um, I still have a friend working there who has, has started working there shortly after I did, who's a career waitress and a, mm. just a fabulous person and a very close friend. And it feels like family. Mm. And so I have never stopped going there. In fact, our, our son um, is graduating from California College of the Arts, which used to be California College of Arts and Crafts, my school. Mm. Um, and he briefly worked there part-time as a dishwasher. So. Right. Following in the footsteps, yeah. he's a legacy dishwasher. But <laughs> tell me, you of course you mentioned your son, and I want to know what, what, what you find interesting, if anything, about the contrast between his experience getting out of college, dishwashing, and, and so on, and yours in this era, in the era of over-easy. Are there things that jump out about are, are the situations starkly different? I think they're very different. I think it was it was really easy to live on almost nothing then. Mm. I was renting a whole house for three hundred dollars a month mm. um, back then, and and you know you you could get everything you needed from the thrift store. You could live very cheaply, and mm. and that was also kind of the danger of that too, because you could just kind of coast along for years without uh, accomplishing anything, because you could you like cover your monthly nut, you know, pretty easily, putting in shifts, and you could dick around forever, <laughs> and then you like suddenly wake up one day and say, "I'm 45 years old, I haven't done anything," and right. some people that actually do, you know, that does happen to them. Mm. As you say, you worked with uh, you worked with at least at least one lady who became a co- uh, career waitress. What did you learn about what it takes to to be a good waitress? To be because I feel like it's a it's a job a lot of people think they can do, but it's a job that very few people can do well for yeah. a long time. Well, I I think you have to anticipate people's needs, and the first thing you do is you get them drinks, and you see if there's anything they want right away, so that they feel taken care of. Right, and then you try to get get them their food and get them what they want and make sure that they're, you know, just make them feel like they're being taken care of. Because, you know, you, what, you go in a restaurant and you feel like you're kind of, as a customer, kind of a hostage to yes. your waitress because this, you know, you can't do anything. They have to bring it all to you. And so they, it, it feels to them like they have power over you. Right. 
and and whereas the waitress feels like the customer has power over them. Yeah. So so there's this all constant pu- power uh, brokerage going on. This push pull of who really has the power in the situation, and um, and so some people feel like you know some people want to treat you like you're the mommy, and some people want to, some customers feel like you know they're they're the great you know, patron, and they're going to either reward you or be punitive, oh depending my. on how you you treat them. Um, so there's, it's you know, it's a complex dialogue, and it, every table is different. So you have mm-hmm. to kind of learn how to suss out each individual situation in a really instinctive and and rapid way. What's what's something your instincts develop to to tell you quickly about what type of customer a customer someone would be, what type of a table someone would have? What, these these lessons that I guess generalize to the rest of life, where you're trying to size somebody up quick. What what type of thing can you learn working a job like that? Oh, you know, just the way someone asks for you know what they want to drink, and uh, and you know the way they look over the menu, you know, and just uh, you know are they relaxed are they tense are they i mean the, the most important thing is like people who come in hungry are not themselves it's like that snickers commercial you oh, know sure. you're not yourself when you're hungry so right. you know that's a, a it's it's an, you kind of have to treat them like children you know you like immediate gratification and and fussing over them is <laughs> it's never a, a, a bad thing i mean some people don't want to be fussed over though so that's the other thing it's like it's all these subtle nuances right do you think a truly good waitress is born rather than made? Is it a is it a core personality type? I think there's yeah, I think there's certain personality types. You have to you have to be able to like you know, put your ego aside to to deal with people. You know, cuz I mean for me it was it it felt like role playing. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, I'm it's sort of like improv. What, what do you want me to be? Do you want me to be like this? Do you want me to be sexy? Do you want me to be maternal? Do you want me to be efficient? Sure. No nonsense. Uh, you know, very familiar. You know, it, it just changes from moment to moment. And that seemed to be a sensibility openly acknowledged at the cafe. Like we're all playing roles here, yeah. so might as well might as well make peace with that and do what we can as role players, right? Yeah, mm. yeah. So it just it made it much more fun to do it that way than to think of yourself like, I guess I'm just going to be a waitress the rest of my life. I'm just a doormat. <laughs> toward, toward the end of this, toward the end of this book, the first volume in the story, Over Easy, uh, Margaret gets, she, I don't know if you call it her break in cartooning, but she's, she starts professionalizing her cartooning. When, when you began professionalizing your your drawing how, how did that did it feel like some some grand shift had been made in your life well it was exciting just to be in print even though it was in a in a classified sex rag <laughs> <laughs> yes I love, I love that. i'm surprised and, they ran cartoons well you know it was the 70s everyone sure. ran more cartoons then everyone <laughs> i mean <laughs> i feel like it was the 70s as the answer to a lot of questions about this yes, book yes it was <laughs> It was really bizarre, and it was the, this. The Spectator was actually the the money making uh, sister of the Berkeley Barb, which at that mm. point was really not making any money. So mm. they had started up this, you know, uh, classified sex 
sex classifieds right. uh, weekly and and um, but if you I mean the, the, when I went to start sending my clippings away to legitimate magazines I would just say that it was in the Berkeley Barb I think uh, I see. close enough <laughs> and, right. and in New York back then because there was no internet they yeah. had no idea they just thought oh Berkeley Barb you know radical organ of the left no one's going to check yeah no right. one's going to check <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. this it, it was one of those things I knew it, I guess they had to exist but it's hard from the perspective of this era to realize it is the actual waiting room at this at this sex classifieds magazine where there's the row of pasty middle aged guys and the hookers all like hand putting in their ads with an old lady <laughs> taking in it's like I I know that must have been the case but it's again internet era very hard to believe isn't it even even for you who saw that it's a little got to be hard to think that was that was that a real thing right it was really a thing <laughs> it was hilarious and you know as a cartoonist it's just like a gift right <laughs> it's you had to see a lot more of that kind of hilarious slash grotesque stuff in person in those days right on the internet so much of it can be conducted oh, yeah. <laughs> anonymously back then everything was in person right right well just like you know before the internet there were there were you know dirty bookstores and you had to sure. go to them and and buy your porn there you know mm. and now we take it for granted that we you know we have this privacy in terms of all of that but you know back then you you if you want to get Dirty and disgusting. You had to do it in public. Yes, that's it's, it's hard to imagine. Tell me a little bit more about the contrast between the, the era of the life you 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 write and draw and over easy. And you mentioned, of course, other cartoons you've done about sh- that, that are por- poking more fun at uh, life in Los Angeles now. What's what's the difference in the sort of material you find back from your own memories then and from what you from what you can draw from your life in Los Angeles today? Well, I mean, a lot of it's still the same. I'm st- it's still observational yeah. stuff about everyday life in Los Angeles and, the, you know, just the oddball experiences that are available here mm-hmm. and and things that are very... I mean, the LA Times, they always want me to do things that are very specifically Southern California related. Right. So um, I haven't done any in... Uh, I think over a year because I've been so busy working on this book. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, like um, uh, the um, Day of the Dead celebration at Hollywood Forever Cemetery right. uh, is a very, you know, comic experience. Um, going to Richard Simmons' gym in Beverly Hills and doing an uh, 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 aerobic uh. workout with him is just like a gift of the car- comic gods. <laughs> I mean, God bless him. You know, he comes to every workout in a different costume and works out in it. You know, gladiator, bride, poodle, you know, (laughs) it's just fantastic. You know, uh, going to a Civil War reenactment out in Chatsworth. (laughs) I think of of a comic I read of yours recently, which was a a hamster show in Griffith Park. A much smaller scale event than you would picture, but... It did leave me with a lingering question. You you go to this hamster show where the one lady is showing hamsters and evaluating other hamsters at a card table over in Griffith Park, and you say to yourself, "This should be hilarious." And yet, why 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 are we all so sad about this idea that a a lady is devoting her life to hamsters? Have you thought any more about why that's so sad? Well, you know, you just think this is all she has in her life. Right. She's living, in, you know, she just like in the cartoon. I'm imagining she's living in a studio apartment, surrounded by you know <laughs> yes. hamsters scurrying around in little plastic balls, <laughs> you know, eating her 
dinner off of a uh, a, a TV tray and, and mm. watching Animal Planet. <laughs> it's, I, you never imagine like she leads a very rich life, except for she the hamster a very thing. Very rich life. I could just be completely condescending and and cruel. But to we all make the assumption. I think you do, which is that oh, this lady has only hamsters, and it's. Even if she draw, no matter how much satisfaction she draws from the hamsters, it's still going to make us a bit sad that it's about hamsters. Her life, right? Yeah. Hmm. Why? Why is that? Why is that? Why does it make us sad? Yeah. Even even if even, let's say that she does get a lot of fulfillment from the hamsters, it's still it still is somehow saddening. Is there it must not? be more than hamsters. Let's face yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there must be more. Now, you're going to be doing a number of events related to Overeasy, including an actual event at, at the real cafe, the real, the real version of the yes. Imperial Cafe. What's, what's going on there? Well, I'll be doing a reading and, and book signing there, um, but I, I, it's going to have a really elegiac tone because one of the major players in this book and in the real-life restaurant is a woman who's worked there since the beginning who suddenly and unexpectedly died last mm. week. Which is really shocking and mind blowing and, and shocking and yet not unexpected. Mm. Um, she had not been in good health for a long time and uh, she was absolutely one of a kind character and person and uh, we'll all miss her. And so that'll, it's just the timing is very odd for me. I mean, mm. I don't want to make it all about me when it's a person's life is been lost but it's just such a major part of the whole story and the mythos of the restaurant in right. real life is this person mm, it will be a chance to pay tribute to her i suppose i certainly hope so mm. you will also be at the uh los angeles times festival of books and what, what's the panel you'll be on there uh you know i don't know what the name of it is <laughs> i've forgotten but it's with uh vanessa davis who's a very good friend of mine and uh anders nilsson and ben catcher mm. and most important to highlight is you have the launch going on at Skylight Books on the 30th, and uh, that will be... Will there, any, any specific things we should know about that, or just that it's going on then? Just there? it's going on. It'll be fun. Mm. It's a great neighborhood bookstore. Right. If anybody hasn't gone to Skylight Books, I think anybody in Los Angeles listening to this will have certainly gone, but anybody coming through certainly do go there. And speaking of destinations, you know, next time I'm in Oakland, I will want to go to the to the inspiration for the Imperial Cafe. The, I, I will want to go to the actual place, when I do, I don't know, do you have recommendations for what I should get there? Well, everything's good. Mm. Um, I like the Spanish omelet. Um, their home fried potatoes cannot be beat by anyone anywhere. Mm. Um, it's all good. They have a lot of daily specials. Uh, they have fresh squeezed orange juice. It's, um, it's just all good. Mm. And does it still have some centrality to uh, Oakland life? Oh, or? yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a major place in Oakland. Everyone knows about it. It's famous. And my friend Sherry, who still works there, is like maybe the most famous waitress there. She's such a fixture of the place. You should ask for Sherry. I'll ask for Sherry. It's, you know, reading this book, I would, it surprises me that the place still exists because it really, it has, I almost imagine, oh, this is one of those, this is one of those cafes that was, it's a, it was too special a place to keep going on or what have you. But in Oakland, it seems like well, it's things not can... run the same way anymore. Not, it could yeah, only go sure. on so long like that. Sure, the much... 70s had to stop. Yeah, and and to his credit, George Marino, the owner, is a, a very astute businessman who who uh, knew when he had to like regroup and <laughs> right. make people start paying attention to you know the bottom line. Right. The party's over. 
I don't know that the party's ever been over because mm. it's still a great place, but you know that party is over. I, New know, party. There, then there were no rules. Now there's rules. Ah, I see. <laughs> That's a good a good summing up of the difference in era, I suppose. I've been speaking here with Mimi Pond. She's the author of the graphic novel Over Easy, which is the first part of a longer story about waitressing in in a very distinctive time and a distinctive place, Oakland, in the late 1970s. Mimi, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org or with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.